The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. One announcement, continuing announcement, the conference for the, the uh, pastor's conference, or Bible conference as it's really called, there's so many people coming from out of town that really aren't pastors. They just want to come in for the conference. That it, Calling it a pastor's conference is just a, a holdover. But that begins on Monday the 13th of March and is every night, 13th, 14th, and 15th, and that's Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday night. Then on Thursday night, we will have our normal Bible class. But since we have the conference on Tuesday night, there won't be prayer meeting Tuesday night. We will have prayer meeting, though, on Thursday night. Now, do you think you all are flexible enough to remember all of that and get that down? So we'll just announce it every time. But there will not be Bible class next Tuesday night or next Thursday night. No Bible class next week on Tuesday or Thursday. There's a lot of setup things that have to be done during the week, so no class next week. There will be class on Monday, on Sunday, though. Don't, don't forget that. Before we begin, let's make sure we're in fellowship, so we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1, 9 if necessary, then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Lord, we're grateful we have freedom in this nation to worship you. We, thank, we are grateful for our forefathers who had the desire to establish a nation built on principles derived from your word. Father, continuously this nation has been under attack within the framework of the angelic conflict in order to destroy these freedoms, in order to destroy the, uh, the, the teaching of the truth and the stand for the truth in this nation. And we continue to see the the foundation that was established in the 1600s and 1700s erode. Father, we continue to pray for our nation, for our president, for our leaders. You'd give them wisdom. We pray that uh, this nation would uh, respond to the truth that is taught, for there are still many pastors who are proclaiming the truth, teaching the word, and there is more of a witness today of your word, more availability of the truth through the Internet, through various technological means through Christian bookstore publishing, even though there's a lot of garbage. There's such a tremendous availability of truth today that it is a, a true sign of our negative volition that we do not respond. Father, we pray that for this congregation that we may continue to be a, a bulwark of truth and a shining light that exposes the errors of human viewpoint in this culture and teaches believers how to think biblically and grow spiritually. We pray that you would help us to understand the things that we study this evening, that as we build our, our soul fortress of strength from the doctrine in our soul, that you would use this that we study to, to increase our growth. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We're in Genesis 27. We're continuing our study of Jacob study of Jacob within the 
patriarchal section of Genesis. Remember, Genesis has two sections. The first 11 chapters establish the foundation of the human race. The second half of the book, or the second part of the book, rather, from Genesis 11.27 to the end of chapter 50, focuses on the foundation of the of the new people that God calls out, Israel. The focus is on four individuals, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. And so we are in the Jacob section. Uh, Actually, it's the Isaac section, but the focus in the Isaac section is on Jacob. And we have seen in the last two chapters the wonderful sin nature character of Jacob. See, as believers, we have two characters. We have one that is shaped by our sin nature and one that is being shaped and transformed by the uh, Word of God as we are being renewed. Our thinking is being renewed by the Bible doctrine in our soul. It transforms us. It transforms our character, our personality to reflect the virtues of Jesus Christ, to reflect His character. So sometimes we all go through that that experience at some stage in the early part of our Christian life when we almost feel like we're we're two different people, and that's what Paul expresses in in Romans chapter 7. I I do the things I don't want to do, and I don't do the things I want to do. Oh, wretched man that I am. And he he just feels that tremendous tension that we all feel at some stage as we grow spiritually. And we see this exemplified in in Jacob, because Jacob is just like the rest of us, and that's why I think we we look at him in these early parts of the story in Genesis 26, 27, 28, and on into about chapter 32, and we see Jacob as just a a manipulator, someone who's conniving, someone who's constantly working the deal to get whatever he thinks is his best interest. But gradually we see that God is getting his attention and that he begins to focus on eternal spiritual realities and there is a transformation that takes place. And tonight we're going to see one of those events. There's two that stand out in the story of Jacob and the first occurs in chapter 28. So we start off back in chapter 25 looking at Jacob, the conniver, the manipulator, and how he secured both the birthright and the blessing. There's a distinction in Genesis and in the ancient world between the birthright, which was called the Bakara, that focused on the double inheritance of the firstborn, and then the blessing, the Baraka, which focused on the future fortune, the outworking of God's blessing in the life of the individual. And we saw that Esau, the twin, has no focus on eternal things. He's just concerned about his own uh, immediate uh, physical pleasure and desire for food, uh, desire for uh, enjoyment of creation. But he's thinking, he doesn't think about tomorrow. He doesn't think about the long term. He just thinks about the immediate gratification of his needs. And so he's willing to sell his birthright, his double portion, his position as a firstborn for just a bowl of red lentil soup, and he becomes the picture in Scripture of the nearsighted believer, the believer who is not oriented to the future, who doesn't have a personal sense of his eternal destiny. He's just concerned about the here and now, and he isn't focused on what God is doing in his life today in preparation for the future. 
Jacob, on the other hand, does think of the future. But he thinks of the future still within a carnal frame of reference. He understands the long-term benefits that the blessing will bring him, but rather than learning in his spiritual advance to relax and to trust God, he wants to manipulate God, manipulate the circumstances so that he can get it now. So he wants the right thing, but he doesn't want to do it the right way. He wants to do a right thing but in a wrong way. And that also characterizes many believers. And so the picture that we see in Genesis 26 and 27 is a picture of a fragmented family where nobody's doing anything right. Esau and Jacob are both out of line. The parents, Isaac and Rebekah, are both out of line. They're paying playing favorites with the two boys, and we saw last time what the consequences are. And after God gives his announcement to Isaac where he reconfirms that blessing of the Abrahamic covenant to Isaac in the beginning of chapter 26, we don't hear from God again. He, he just steps back, and you see the outworking of people's decisions from their own sin nature. And so we saw last time how uh, Isaac is ready to bless Esau. He disregards the promise of God that the older will serve the younger, that the firstborn will serve the secondborn, and that Isaac is the one that God has chosen to bless. And so Esau is going, I mean, Isaac is going to bless Esau. Rebekah hears this, and rather than trusting God, rather than praying about it, rather than going through any of the any application of doctrine, she decides she's going to manipulate the situation. She's going to comes up with a plan to deceive Isaac, and then she brings Isaac, or excuse me, she brings Jacob into her plan to deceive Isaac. And of course, we saw that Isaac gets deceived, and he blesses uh, Jacob instead of Esau. And this is an irreversible course, and it is a legal. A concept that the blessing is given and it's it's announced orally and it can't be reversed. It's like the old days when a man's word was as good as his handshake. That's what it was. Once it was announced, that was it. You couldn't go back. You couldn't reverse it. You couldn't diminish it. Even if the blessing were secured through deceptive means, that was it. It was written in stone, as it were, and nothing could be changed. And this, of course, angers Esau. We saw how Esau responds in mental attitude, sins, anger, bitterness, resentment, and he wants to get revenge. And so he announces the fact that he is going to kill Jacob in verses 41 and 42, which is what we, where we ended last time, which sets up the transition from the events of chapter 27 to the events in chapter 28. Chapter 28 focuses on the fact that Jacob, now that he has secured the blessing, which focuses on the land, remember again the Abrahamic covenant, three elements, land, seed, and blessing. The land focuses on this piece of real estate that God promises Abraham and his descendants. The seed relates to those descendants, ultimately focusing on the Lord Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the seed of Abraham and the seed of the woman back in Genesis 3.15 as the Messiah who will provide salvation for the whole world and thus bless the whole world, the third aspect of the Abrahamic covenant. So these three elements are constantly woven into our study of Genesis. So when you read Genesis, you always have to keep in mind 
the Abrahamic covenant and how all of these events that we see relate to one of those three elements, the land, the seed, and the blessing. And so there are these various tests. Now, the application for us as believers is to realize that the Abrahamic covenant functioned toward Israel in the same way that our position in Christ that we get at salvation functions toward us. The Abrahamic covenant is their position. They are secure in their relationship with God because of the unconditional Abrahamic covenant. And in terms of their experience, there's failure, there's disobedience, there's obedience, there's blessing, there's cursing, but they're secure in what God promised and what God gives them in the Abrahamic covenant. In the same way as believers, God has promised a new, innumerable blessings to us that are part of that divine spiritual asset package that we get at the instant of salvation. That is ours. We can't ever lose it. We're going, in our experience, we'll be disobedient, we'll be rebellious, we'll be callous towards the promise of God, we'll be positive at times, we'll be interested, we'll be obedient. There'll be times of blessing, times of cursing, times of discipline, but the package never changes, and the test for us is the same as the test for the Old Testament Jew, and that is, are we going to learn to live in light of that unconditional package that's given to us by virtue of our position. Their position was in Abraham. Our position is in Christ. It's a superior position. We have superior blessings. So in terms of application, we always need to be thinking in terms of that, that these were given to us, as Paul said, to be an example of tupas, uh, so that we can learn from the mistakes of others. Of course, the problem is that most of us don't even learn from our own mistakes rather than the mistakes of others. But that's why this is there, is that maybe we'll learn a few things and avoid making the same errors errors that they made. So Jacob now must leave the land of blessing. He must flee because his brother is threatening his life. So he must leave, yet we learn that God is not going to depart from him. He has screwed up royally. He has disobeyed God in a sense because he's tried to achieve the blessing on his own terms. He's been in there manipulating the situation, conniving, deceiving, operating on the sin nature, not trusting God, and now he has to leave the land of blessing. It's the irony of God's discipline that Rebecca, his mother, who loved him dearly, doted on him, and wanted him to have the blessing that as a result of her achieving what she wanted, he has to leave and she'll never see him again. And she'll never see her beloved son. She'll die before he's able to come come back to the land. And that's part of God's divine discipline uh, for her and her involvement in this manipulation. But what we see here is the broad principle of God's grace, and that is because of our position in Christ... Just as Jacob had a position in Abraham, God doesn't leave us or forsake us. Even when we're out of line, even when we're in carnality, even when we're out of fellowship, even when we're disobedient, God is still working in us and through us. He may not be able to produce divine good, the fruit of the Spirit, because if we're out of fellowship, that's not going to happen. But as long as we are a child of God, he is going to be working in our life, maybe in terms of discipline, but he is still working to bring us 
uh, bring us along. And that's what we see indicated with Jacob here, is that even when a believer makes a mess out of his life, God doesn't leave him. God is still working, and God is still going to reveal himself to Jacob out of grace. We see this principle of God's faithfulness to us exemplified in two promises that are given to the Jews as they prepare to enter the land in Deuteronomy 31.6 and Deuteronomy 31.8. Deuteronomy 31.6, Moses says, Be strong and of good courage. Do not fear nor be afraid for them, that is the enemy, the Canaanites. Uh, we have other enemies, other problems, but... The principle is the same. Be strong and of good courage. Do not fear nor be afraid of them. For the Lord your God, He is the one who goes with you. He will not leave you nor forsake you. And this is picked up and and quoted in Hebrews chapter 13 as well. Same principle in the 8th verse of that chapter. And the Lord, He is the one who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you nor forsake you. Do not fear nor be dismayed. Now, we see this doctrinal principle exemplified in this episode with Jacob because Jacob has to leave the land. He has to leave the geographical place that God has said is the promise to Abraham, the focal point of these Old Testament promises. And yet, as he leaves the land, God is going to go before him. God won't leave him. God won't forsake him. And he's going to leave as a as a man with no possessions, he's going to be impoverished. He has nothing but the clothes on his back. And he's leaving in disgrace. He's motivated by fear. He's afraid of what his brother's going to do. And it's such a real fear that when he, and we'll see that when he comes back into the land, he has accumulated this enormous amount of wealth. And he has cattle, and he has camels, and he has sheep. And he has served, and he sends everybody in front of him. He's going to be the last one to confront Esau because he doesn't know what Esau is going to do to him. He doesn't know if Esau still hates him and still has murderous lust in his eyes. So he sends all these possessions out in front of him almost as a bribe to Esau to soften his return. So God is going to ritually bless Jacob while he is out of the land, all as part of the Abrahamic covenant because of his position in Abraham, not because of anything that Jacob is doing, because Jacob, most of the time he's out of the land, isn't any different from us when we're in spiritual infancy and spiritual adolescence. Part of the time we're going to see Jacob as a man who has some spiritual sensitivity, some positive volition, some concern about the things of God and God's plan for his life. And then the very next day he turns around. It's like he never heard a thing, never learned a thing, doesn't have a clue, doesn't want what God wants. He's back to his old sin nature trends of manipulation, uh, conniving, trying to get what he wants because if he doesn't do it, nobody else will. He's a lot like the rest of us, and except his sins are laid out there, his character is laid out there for us in a very clear manner. Now what we see at the beginning of this is Jacob leaves the land of blessing. We have to ask the question, why? Why does he have to flee? I mean, obviously, there's the immediate reality of the fact that, that um, his brother is out to kill him. But in a broader sense, there is the work of God in that situation. So that a lot of times, even though we're 
out of fellowship, even though we're in carnality, even though the immediate reasons for certain things happening in our life are not necessarily good, we see in this episode that God is working behind the scenes, working out that which is ultimately good. It's an application of Romans 8.28, and we know that God works all things together for good. And so we see that in the background, God is working to bring about the accomplishment of the promises that he has made in the Abrahamic covenant. And what underlies this move out of the land is related to the principle in Scripture of separation, the doctrine of separation. Sometimes this gets really distorted, especially if you have a trend towards self-righteousness and legalism. You can really have a field day with the doctrine of separation. Next thing you know, out goes the television and out goes all the music and you quit going to movies and you get rid of all your friends and you just stay at home all the time. That's taking it too far. Separate, but on the other hand, if you have a trend in your sin nature towards licentiousness and antinomianism, you haven't paid enough attention to the doctrine of separation. There is a balance in the doctrine of separation and you have to be careful not to let your sin nature trends dictate how you apply this particular doctrine. Separation is a subcategory of the doctrine of sanctification. Separation is a subcategory of the doctrine of separation. Now what is, I mean the doctrine of sanctification. Now what is sanctification? That whole word group that, that we don't hear too much of in everyday language anymore, words like saint, sanctify, sanctification, holy, holy, holiness, all of those words that we have in English which have really lost a lot of their, their meaning for us because they're used so much within uh, religious context. These are words that are, are translations of, of word groups in both Hebrew and Greek that relate to being set apart to the service of God. It's not the idea of moral purity as much as it's the idea of being set apart to the service of God. So if you are set apart to the service of God that automatically implies that you must separate yourself from things in life that distract you or interfere with serving God. When you start making God and the knowledge of doctrine the number one priority in your life, that automatically means that you have to make choices. You have to stop doing some things that you enjoy doing, not all of which are necessarily wrong or sinful. They're just... Some of these things are neutral, they're fun, they're fine, but in your life, perhaps, they are distractions. That can be, I'm gonna, I know I'm going to step on toes here, that can be golf. That can be, uh, I knew somebody would enjoy that one. It, it can be anything in life that distracts you. It, it can be politics, political involvement. Some people start getting all concerned about politics, next thing you know, they're out of fellowship and they're just get all wrapped around the axle about every little thing that happens every single day, and they become addicted to uh, Fox News. I don't think any of you all are addicted to CNN, but somebody might be, or uh, 
whatever it might be, you just can't help but following everything. You just have to get on the Drudge Report every day, and you have to see what Ann Coulter said. You have to see what Michelle Malkin said, and it just dominates your life. Well, that becomes a distraction. Anything can become a distraction if you're a parent and you have kids and those kids are growing up and you want the best for those kids. So that means music lessons, dance lessons, soccer, swimming, uh, dance, whatever it is, you want them to be exposed to everything. And you don't have the energy to go through all of that, so all of a sudden you can't make it to Bible class every night because you're so involved with everything with the kids that the the priority of doctrine in your life and in the family life just gradually goes by the wayside. It's not that there's anything wrong with these things. It comes down to the fact that if we're going to make the Word of God the priority in our individual lives and in our family lives, then that means we have to say no to some things. They may be fine for other folks, and other folks, because of their personalities, their background, their situation, their circumstances, they can balance it out and do it, or maybe they're not. So we always had that problem with looking at the other person saying, well, they do it, why can't I do it? Well, if it distracts you from doctrine, if it keeps you from making the Word of God a priority, if it keeps you from focusing on your spiritual life, the spiritual life of your family, then it's a distraction. And so there needs to be uh, separation. So the core issue that we discover in separation is really that of values and priorities. Values and priorities. What is really important in life? And, you know, the sad thing is that I know some of you have noticed this, Others of you have yet to learn this, but as we get older, we can't do quite as much as we did when we were younger. I saw a fascinating uh, study on the brain on PBS uh, several years ago, which really helped me to understand some things about senility and Alzheimer's and different things like that. But as we grow older, our brains aren't, our brains are like our bodies. They're just not as flexible when they're older as as when we're younger. So we may be able to do eight things at the same time when we're younger, multitasking. But when we hit 50, all of a sudden we have to cut that down to about five or six at the same time. You hit 70 or 80, you know, you're down, you can still do the eight things, but you can only do them one at a time. You can't, you can't wash the dishes, cook, clean the house, read a book, and watch a television show and work on your income tax at the same time. You can only do one of those at a time, otherwise you're going to end up you know, burning your income tax on the stove while the, uh, you're drowning your grandkids in the dishwasher. So we have to make decisions, and the older we get, the, what I find is the more we have to decide, well, there are things I could do when I was younger, but I just can't do those things anymore. just a distraction. I, I have to focus on what's, what has real lasting uh, priority. Psalm 37, 4 and 5 tells us that we need to delight ourselves in the Lord. That is our priority. That is where the joy of our life Focuses. Delight yourself in the Lord, and He shall give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in Him, and He shall bring it to pass. We have to learn to make the Lord that priority. That's what Jacob's having to learn. When we see him come to Bethel here and have this vision of what is called Jacob's ladder, and it's not really a ladder, it's a stair- stairway. It's the first stairway to heaven. And in uh, Genesis 37, we see Jacob getting getting caught up by in, in a realization that God really has a plan for him. 
And that begins to change things. That begins to uh, have an impact on him. It doesn't last long. And that's true for most of us. The first time we really recognize that God had a plan for us, it really caught our attention. It was, a, it was almost a religious experience. It might have been for some of you. But after a while, it, it sort of wears off. That's sort of a problem that we have is that, that things that really hit us as significant at one time in our life, after a while, the, the freshness of that, the reality of it sort of wears off. Our sin nature teaches us to compartmentalize it and to somehow wrap it up in, in a, a cloak so we anesthetize its significance until sometime later on God, we, we're sitting in Bible class and we're studying the Word and the Holy Spirit whacks us with something else. And that's the process of growth. And Jacob's going to go through that same process. But he has to learn that his ultimate purpose in life is serving God. And God has a plan for his life. And our ultimate mission on this earth is to align our thinking and our lives and our decision-making to God's plan and his purposes and his priorities and not our plans and our purposes and our priorities. So the core issue is that of priorities and values. And the value has to be on that which is going to promote our relationship with God and spiritual growth. And that means that we have to learn to be separated from the cosmic system around us. It's not just a matter of dealing with the the things that are somewhat neutral that just distract us because we enjoy doing them, but also the influences around us. And whether that is family, whether that's friends, whether it's uh, entertainment, uh, that we like books that we like to read or people we like to listen to. Someday we wake up and realize, you know, they really do have uh, values that they're communicating that are contrary to to the Word of God. And even though I've always enjoyed them, maybe I need to not expose myself to that anymore because it is just hitting, I'm just being hit over and over again with content that is not biblical. And that's what we see going on in Abraham's family. And Abraham recognized this. That's why he knew that when it came time for uh, Isaac to get married, Isaac could not marry a girl that came out of the Canaanite culture around him because she was completely immersed in paganism. Her values were pagan values. Uh, the values that she would inculcate in the children would be pagan values that when there came to be decisions in the home, she would influence uh, Isaac uh, from the her frame of reference of, of paganism. And so uh, Abraham knew that he had to go back to Haran, to Padan Aram, which means the plains of Aram, uh, had to go back to that area to get a relative who at least had a general orientation toward God that would serve as Isaac's wife. In contrast to that, we saw that Ishmael married an Egyptian girl in Genesis 21:21, and their whole family drifted further and further away from the Lord into just rank paganism. Esau displeased his parents. In Genesis 26:34, he marries two Hittite girls, and it grieves his parents, because they recognize that this is going to take him away from the Lord. And even though they have their failures, just like we all do, they know that real life takes place in relationship to God, knowing doctrine, applying doctrine. 
And so Esau grieves his parents by marrying uh, two Hittite girls. Abraham had insisted that Isaac marry a girl from back in Padan Aram, so he sent a servant back. But he didn't send Isaac back. He sent a servant back to find a wife for Isaac. Isaac he kept where? In the land. In the land that God promised. In the land which would be the place of blessing. So in a similar way, Isaac and Rebekah have to keep Jacob from marrying a girl from among the Canaanite population. Esau has already fallen prey. They have to do something. So there's not only a negative motivation here to get Jacob out of the land because his brother wants to kill him, but a positive facet of this in that they want him to get away from the local Canaanite girls and get back to Padan Aram and, and marry a girl from back home, from within the family, who at least has values that are oriented to the God of Abraham and the God of his, of his fathers. So Isaac and Rebekah uh, are going to use this as an opportunity to get Jacob away from the threat of marrying an unbeliever or a pagan girl. Now, we do have an important New Testament application for this. And that still falls under the category of separation. Now, most of y'all have gone past this stage in life where you're concerned about who you're going to marry. Now, a few of you haven't. And others of you have children and grandchildren that you need to influence in this arena. And we get into the New Testament and we realize that this is still a strong mandate in the New Testament to avoid being involved with unbelievers, Second Corinthians chapter six, verses fourteen through seventeen. There, Paul says, "Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers." So he uses the imagery that comes out of an agricultural society, that of taking two oxen and yoking them together so that they would pull the plow in tandem. They would be able to work together toward a common goal. You see, when a believer is married to an unbeliever, you have one person who's operating or should be operating on divine viewpoint and one set of priorities, and the other person is operating on human viewpoint and another set of priorities, so they would be pulling in two different directions. And even if you have a believer that's carnal, he is in the New Testament, in the church age, he's indwelt by the Holy Spirit, who's going to be always working to push him in the direction of spiritual growth. If he's in carnality, then he's going to come under divine discipline. That means that the unbeliever that's yoked together with the believer is going to come under discipline by association and and doesn't have a clue how to handle that. And Paul says, don't be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. And he does at that stage, he's not even applying it yet to marriage. He's talking about relationships in general. This involves friendship. This involves business partnership. It could be applied to anything in life. Don't be unequally yoked together with unbelievers where that other person has decision-making ability and can influence you in the realm of ethics and morality and can and has a sway over your your priorities and your values and how you spend your time. 
And then he goes on by, he develops this principle by asking a series of rhetorical questions. He says, what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? So he draws this contrast. On the one hand, you have a believer who possesses the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ, imputed righteousness. And the unbeliever has no imputed righteousness. They're unrighteous. So what partnership can you have between a believer who's a member of the royal family of God and has a royal family honor code and the uh, unbeliever who is unrighteous? The believer possesses the righteousness of God and is positionally set apart to God. The same way, Abraham recognized that his son Isaac and Isaac recognized that his son Jacob was positionally set apart by the Abrahamic covenant. So what, how could they enter into a partnership with these people in the land that God was going to eventually judge? So what fellowship does righteousness have to have with lawlessness? What communion has light with darkness? And we are sons of the light. We are children of God. And yet the unbeliever is positionally in darkness. They are... Uh, fallen. So the issue here is what communion, or some translations use the word harmony, and it's the Greek word symphonesis. Symphonesis. Wonder what English word we have that comes from symphonesis. Symphony. You know, it emphasizes that 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 harmony that comes from uh, different uh, instruments playing different uh, different parts in the in the uh, uh, musical presentation that blends together and complements each other and that's what happens in a marriage it doesn't mean the wife's just like the husband husband's just like the wife but they blend together in a symphony but that can't happen when one is a believer and one is an unbeliever verse 15 Paul goes on to say what accord does Christ have with Belial Remember, the believer is a child of God, but the unbeliever is a child of Satan. Jesus addressed the, uh, the Pharisees and says, You are of your father the devil. Every unbeliever is a child of the devil, positionally. I remember the, my very first church I taught that, and a lot of people in that church listened to Norman Vincent Peale and Robert Schuller, and they just really didn't like the fact that that, oh, everybody's a child of God. So I had to spend a lot of time in John 8 to disabuse them of that, and they didn't care for it. Uh, what accord has Christ with Belial, or what part? Meris here, it's related to that uh, Greek word meros, which we've studied that has to do with inheritance and portion. Or what portion has a, or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? In other words, Paul's being very strong here. There isn't an option. So parents, you need to be involved in your children's friendships. When they're growing up, you need to help them learn how to select their friends. I didn't like it when I was a kid, and my mother did that. I remember there was uh, one kid that I was running around with in junior high, and uh, and my mother said, you know, I don't like him. You're not going to, that's it. You're not going to do anything with him anymore. And that was it. And I remember from, I was, at least when I was six or seven, when I would come home and I said, "Well, I met this new, new kid at school. Are they a believer?" And I always got that question. I knew that right away. Are they a believer? Well, I don't know, but well, you got to find out if they're a believer. 
And you never know how that's going to work out in life. I, my best friend lived down the street. We'd been friends since we were in the second grade. His name was Robert, and my name was Robert, so that was our point of contact. And so I had to go find out if he was saved. So I found out if he was saved, and I knew he was, he was saved, despite the fact that he went, was a Presbyterian and went to a Presbyterian church. But nevertheless, what's interesting is that some 25 years later, and by this time, because of various things that happened in both of our lives, we weren't in as much contact anymore, and we weren't living in the same ge- geographical area, but we both ended up again back in the Houston area. And we got in contact, and he called me up out of the blue, and he said, um, which I, something that was, I thought was kind of strange, he says, uh, let me take you to the uh, Renaissance Festival this weekend. I'd never been out there, never really wanted to go out there, but I thought, okay, well, that'd be fun. We can just spend some time together. We haven't se- seen much of each other in about 10 or 12 years. So we did, and we spent the day together. And on the way back, on the way home, he says, how do I know if I'm going to heaven? Just right out of the blue. I mean, just didn't see that question coming at all. And I said, well, do you remember when we first became friends? <laughs> and I sat down and I explained the gospel to you. And I know you're saved. Not only that, I know your mother's saved. I've had conversations with, with at least one of your older sisters. And I know that she's saved. And I know that you trusted Christ as your Savior. And so then we went through the gospel again. And then I gave him copy. I think I gave him a copy of Late Great Planet Earth. That was about the only thing I had handy at the time. I think he still has that copy of Late Great Planet Earth. But over the years, I had opportunities here and there. You never know when they come up, but I've had opportunities in his family. There were four kids in that family, and I've had opportunities to sit down with almost every member of that family and make sure they were saved. And you just never know how these things are going to happen. But And as I grew up, my mother constantly did that. Well, by the time I got to be about 15 or 16 and it was time to, you know, you had to ask a girl out or a date or you wanted to go out on a date, you know, the first question was, well, are they a believer? Well, because my mother had set that pattern from the time I was six or seven, it wasn't something out of the blue when I started dating. I knew that if I'm going to have anything to do with anybody, the first question i got to deal with is, are they a believer? And so that never became an issue for me. And when I got into the pastorate and went to my first church, I was appalled. I mean, I was so shocked. Because most of the kids that I grew up with at church knew you didn't go out with unbelievers, and I never knew anybody. They might have gone out here there with unbelievers, but I didn't know anybody that I had grown up with that had married unbelievers. I'm sure there were some, but I didn't know them. But when I went to this first church, I was amazed at how many of the daughters and the sons of the key people in that congregation who were up in their 50s by then or 60s, and they had grown kids, had married unbelievers. And they had all these problems. What do I do about my grandchildren? You know, they're going to this church, or they're, go- they're not going to church at all, and their husband's just, just an atheist and won't let them go to church, and all these problems. And I thought, didn't anybody teach you that as parents your job is to make sure your kids don't ever get involved in intimate relationships with unbelievers? And if you don't go out on a date with an unbeliever, you're not going to marry an unbeliever. It's just as simple as that. And you have to be very careful because you go out on a date. And some of you have some tremendous stories to tell in your own marriages, how you went out or met your spouse who you've been married to for 30 or 40 years, 
and you had no clue as to what would happen when you first met them for coffee or wherever it was, and, and you might not have even been attracted to them initially, and yet look at what happened. Well, what if they'd been an unbeliever? We just don't know how, how those emotions are going to hit us. And so as parents, your job is to drill this into your children from an early age so they just don't think that's an option to get involved in intimate relations with unbelievers. So you don't marry unbelievers. You don't marry a believer who isn't as positive as you are. That's another problem you hear a lot. Of course, sometimes you can't always evaluate that. You you think that uh, you're positive, they're positive, and five years down the road, they go negative. Or you go negative. Or you both go negative. Now, if you both go negative, usually it's better than if one's negative and the other's positive. You don't date unbelievers. And you just are careful of all your friends because close, intimate friends influence you because we all succumb to peer pressure at one level or another. But it's not just those intimate relationships of marriage, romance, but it also applies to business. Have to be very careful if you're in business who you become a partner with, where your uh, finances are tied up with someone else who's not a believer, may not have the same values, same ethics, uh, decision-making. Some business arrangements are, are fine. Others aren't. It depends on the influence that comes from their ethical, moral, religious uh, orientation. So it's time to get Jacob out of the land of Canaan so that he does not succumb to the temptations of the Canaanite women, which are very real in a culture that is dominated by uh, fertility religions and uh, sexual immorality, which it was. And Jacob's kids, Jacob didn't learn the lesson. Remember, you see this deterioration in the family. Isaac, uh, Isaac was kept at home. And it was the servant that went to get the wife. But Jacob is, there's mixed motives there. Abraham is really concerned with the purity of the circumstances. But, but Jacob's going to get sent out of town for mixed motives. I mean, part of it is to make sure he doesn't marry a Canaanite. But he also has all this other stuff going on. When he raises his boys, he doesn't seem to apply any of this. He didn't learn the lesson and so all of his boys intermarry with the Canaanite women, and that threatens the purity and the set-apart status of the Abrahamic seed. This is why God had to take the whole family out of the Promised Land and take them to Egypt to isolate them, to protect them, because they were in danger of just being swallowed up, completely engulfed by the pagan Canaanite culture because of their intermarriage with the Canaanites. So God is going to protect Isaac in these circumstances, and he uses uh, Esau's bitterness and anger as a way to protect Jacob and to get him away from this position. So in verse 28, or chapter 28, verse 1, Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and charged him. We have almost the same sentence structure that we have at the beginning of chapter 27. Now it came to pass, when Isaac was old, his eyes were dim, he called Esau. Now he calls Jacob. He recognizes that God does have a plan for Jacob, that Jacob is the chosen one through whom the blessing will pass, 
and that God is going to be working in the life of Jacob. So he calls Jacob and he blesses him and charges him and says to him, you shall not take a wife from the daughters of Canaan. Now, whether this is his conviction or whether he's been swayed this way by, by his wife, Rebecca, we're, we're not sure. She recognized the principle, and after Esau's married these two Canaanite women, she says in verse 46 to Isaac, I'm weary of my life because of the daughters of Heth. If Jacob, or this is uh, 2746, Rebecca said to Isaac, I'm weary of my life because of the daughters of Heth, that's the Hittites. If Jacob takes a wife of the daughters of Heth, like these who are the daughters of the land, what good will my life be to me? He's just going to succumb to the pressures. He's going to become like all these other uh, pagans that are surrounding us. So Isaac, we're not sure. It's not clear whether he's doing this of his own. This is his conviction or if he's just... Uh, doing this at the purely at the motivation of Rebecca. Obviously, she has her input, but the text doesn't seem to uh, imply anything negative about Isaac, but he's, he's concerned about this. And so he says in verse 2, Arise, go to Padan Aram, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father. So the focus is not on Abraham's ancestry, but on the ancestry of, of Rebecca which, of course, goes back ultimately to Terah, who was uh, Abraham's father. Arise, go to Padan Aram, that is the plains of Aram. This is up in what we would call north-central Syria today. To the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, and take yourself a wife from there of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. So go find a wife among your cousins. And remember, at this stage in history, we're not that far removed from the flood. There is still enough genetic complexity within every human being to where marriage within a close bloodline is not a problem. This doesn't develop until later on. You don't have any provision in the scriptures that prohibits marriage of someone who's a close relationship till you get into the Mosaic law. And then we read of Isaac's blessing, reiteration of the blessing. He says, may God Almighty bless you. And here he uses the term El Shaddai. May God Almighty bless you. And El Shaddai is first mentioned in Genesis chapter 17, verse 1. Genesis chapter 17, verse Verse 1, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am Almighty God, walk before me and be blameless. This is the episode in Genesis uh, 17 where God confirms again the Abrahamic covenant with Abraham. It is when he promises that there will be a son, that that son will come through Sarah that Abram is going to be renamed Abraham, Sarai is going to be renamed Sarah, and it is the uh, time when the sign of the covenant, the sign of circumcision, is given. So Isaac is clearly phrasing his blessing within the whole structure of the Abrahamic covenant. May God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you. Now, where do we, have we run across that phrase before? 
several places. Genesis 1, 25 to 28, God created uh, man and the woman to be fruitful and to multiply and to fill the earth. That's repeated again when Noah and his family came off the ark. They were to be fruitful and multiply and to fill the earth. So that mandate to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth is directly related to man's ultimate goal to exercise dominion over God's creation. Now he is focusing that within this racial group, these new people that come from Abraham. So he says, may God Almighty bless you and make be fruitful and, and make you fruitful and multiply you. So the first line focuses on blessing. The second line, being fruitful and multiply, focuses on seed. The third line, again, focuses on seed, that you may be an assembly of peoples, a large number of descendants, and give you the blessing of Abraham. So we have blessing, seed, seed, and blessing in, those, in that order. Blessing, seed, seed, blessing. So the, what's the focal point there? It's the middle two stanzas. It's focusing on, on the importance of the seed. Then in the latter part of verse 4, to you and your descendants with you, that you may inherit the what? The land. So we see what? Land, seed, and blessing all over again. That's repeated again and again and again. It's all about the land. The land was first mentioned in Genesis 12, 1 through 3. God told Abram, get out of where you're living, leave your family, leave your father, and go to the land that I'm going to tell you about. In Genesis 12, 7, he said, this is the land that I'm going to give you. In Genesis 13, 15 through 17, he said, arise, walk, through all the land, and all the land that you see, I will give to you. In Genesis 15:7, along with Genesis 15:18, he describes the land promise again. It says it's all the land from the river Euphrates to the uh, great river, uh, the river of Egypt. In Genesis 17:8, it's described as the land of Canaan, the land in which you were a stranger. So the land is important. It's all about. The land, and it's still all about the land. That's what's so crucial about what is happening in Israel right now. And all the negotiations between the Israel, Israel and the uh, pseudo-Palestinians. And it's all about what's going on with Iran right now. And they're saber-rattling towards Israel and the fact that they need to destroy Israel and run Israel out of the land. It's what's been dominating, what has dominated the thought of the Muslims since the early Middle Ages. They stormed across North Africa. They went up through Spain. They were defeated by Charles Martel. Then they tried it. Later on, they tried another end run through the uh, back door coming across through Constantinople and were finally stopped at Vienna, at the, literally at the gates to Western Europe. And that happened in the early 16th 16th century. What was going on in Europe at that time? Reformation. See, God had a plan as part of the prophecy of Noah to Shem, Ham, and Japheth that through the descendants of the Japhethites there would be this spiritual blessing to the whole world because they dwelt in the tents of Shem. And so as there is this return to biblical orthodoxy in Europe, 
there is no coincidence that that happens at the same time that the Muslims are defeated outside of Vienna. Of course, you know the story that after they defeated the, the Muslims, they all left. They left everything there. They left their tents. They left their food. They left their coffee. And until that time, Europe didn't have coffee. And that was the beginning of coffee houses in Vienna. And in order to celebrate, the bakers in, in, in Vienna made a special pastry to celebrate their victory over the Muslims. They made croissants, the crescent-shaped roll, which was a picture of the crescent moon on the Islamic flag. So every time you drink coffee and you have a croissant, you need to toast the defeat of the Muslims. Now, before we finish up, this issue of the land is still important. I was out on uh, the Internet during the uh, night last night looking at different things that are available and there is a website called memory.org and it's spelled M-E-M-R-I that's for Middle East I can't remember now something intelligent but what they put on the Middle East on this memory site is they translate speeches and newspaper articles that are coming out in Arabic newspapers in from Egypt to Saudi Arabia to Iran and Iraq, and they translate that into English. And this is a speech that was given two weeks ago by Yusuf al-Qaradawi, who is one of the leading uh, Islamist sheikhs. And he, claimed, he says in this speech that we're fighting in the name of Islam, that this jihad is an individual duty of the entire Muslim nation. And in this televised message that aired over Qatar TV on February uh, 25, 2006. And incidentally, Sheikh Al-Qawadawi is the head of the European Council for Fatwa and Research. He's also the president of the International Association of Muslim Scholars and the spiritual guide of many other Islamist organizations across the world, including the Muslim Brotherhood. So this just isn't your everyday cleric. This is a guy who has uh, incredible international prestige. And in this message he says, quote, Our war with the Jews is over land. That's the issue. It's the land. It's the Abrahamic covenant. If you have a biblical framework, that's the only way you can understand what's going on in the Middle East today. And that's why when we look at what politicians are saying and doing and what, what military leaders are doing, if you don't operate within a biblical framework of history, you're going to make serious and egregious errors in military planning and political planning. And that's probably how everything's going to end up developing into the scenario for the tribulation eventually is because unbelievers and even believing believer Christian presidents and politicians who don't operate or don't have the courage to operate within a biblical framework are going to compromise with Islam. This is part of the angelic conflict. Their war, he says, our war with the Jews is over land. We must understand this. If they had not plundered our land, there wouldn't be a war between us. We are fighting them in the name of Islam because Islam commands us to fight whoever plunders our land and occupies our country. All the school of Islamic jurisprudence, the Sunni, the Shiite, the Ibadiyya, and all the ancient and modern schools of jurisprudence agree that any invader who occupies even an inch of land of the Muslims must face resistance. 
That's why they're going after Israel because they occupied that land. The Jews came back, came and took it back, and they ha- it's a matter of honor. They have to recover that land. It's also why they had the terrorist attack on the on the train in Spain. See, they need to recover Spain too. That was once part of their part of their territory. He goes on to say. The Muslims of that country, that is Israel, must carry out the resistance and the rest of the Muslims must help them. If the people of that country are incapable or reluctant, we must fight to defend the land of Islam, even if the local Muslims give it up. They must not allow anyone to take a single piece of land away from Islam. This is what we are fighting the Jews for. We are fighting them. Our religion commands us. We are fighting in the name of religion, in the name of Islam, which makes this jihad an individual duty. It's a religious war. It may not be for us, but it is for them. He goes on to say, They fight us with Judaism, so we should fight them with Islam. They fight us with the Torah, so we should fight them with the Quran. If they say the temple, we should say the Al-Aqsa Mosque. If they say we glorify the Sabbath, we should say we glorify the Friday. This is how it should be. Religion must lead the war. This is the only way we can win. Everything will be on our side and against Jews on Judgment Day. At that time, even the stones and the trees, and here he's quoting from the Quran. At that time, even the stones and the trees will speak with or without words and say, quote, O servant of Allah, O Muslim, there's a Jew behind me. Come and kill him. They will point to the Jews. See, their view of the second coming is when when. Christ returns at the second coming, then even the rocks and the trees are going to point out all the Jews so the Muslims can kill all the Jews. That's their idea. That's their view of eschatology and that that Jesus is going to come back to kill all the Jews. He goes on to argue, uh, he says, uh, when the Muslims, the Arabs, and the Palestinians enter a war, they do it to worship Allah. They enter it as Muslims. The Hadith says, O Muslim, says, O Muslim, not O Palestinian, O Jordanian, O Syrian, or Arab nationalist. No, it says, O Muslim, when we enter a war under the banner of Islam and under the banner of serving Allah, we will be victorious. And the battle, as he says at the beginning, is all about the land. And they understand that. And we have politicians and Christians and all kinds of people who don't want to face that reality that this is part of the angelic conflict. It's part of Satan's attempt to prevent God from ever fulfilling his promises to Abraham and thus win, he thinks, in the angelic conflict by destroying God's ability to fulfill his promise. That's why Satan is the father of all anti-Semitism and Satan is the father of all of these attacks against the state of Israel. There is a crucial importance to... Uh, supporting the state of Israel. It fits within the dynamic of Scripture. We'll come back next time and look at what happens to Abraham, I mean to uh, Jacob at Bethel when he has the vision of what is called Jacob's Ladder. Father, thank you for this time to study your word, to be refreshed by it, to gain a, a fresh perspective of history, to realize that even the events of today reflect what happened 4,000 years ago when you promised this land to Abraham and his descendants. Ultimately, you blessed us all through the Lord Jesus Christ, the seed of Abraham, son of Abraham, who died on the cross for our sins that we might have eternal life. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the things we study this evening. In Christ's name, amen.